Praise the Lord. We have a great opportunity this morning to open up the Holy Scriptures together. This, the second Sunday of the month, is our Psalm Sunday. We've been in the Psalms for some time, and I'd like to turn there again today. Would you turn with me to Psalm 84? Psalm 84 will be our text today. Under the title, Highway to Zion. The title of this morning's message is Highway to Zion. That is a pathway, a direction, a purpose, a goal toward Zion, the place of God's communion with His people. Psalm 84 is all about these themes. The aim of this morning's message is to convict us, to convict us of taking the privileges of our relationship with God too lightly. This is so easy to do. It's so easy for us to take the privileges of our relationship with God too lightly. To this tendency, Psalm 84 brings correction, and it brings encouragement. If you have your Bible open to Psalm 84, would you stand with me one more time this morning out of reverence for the Holy Word of God? And listen in your ears as the Word of the Lord is proclaimed in your hearing today. Psalm 84, under the title, To the Choir Master, According to the Giddeth, a Psalm of the Sons of Korah. Verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises, Selah. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Their early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Let me introduce this message with a little background and context for Psalm 84. The rich covenant history of the people of God provides the background and occasion for this song. Think of it at the time of, say, King David or those who would follow in his lineage. Under the organization of the nation of Israel, when they were walking with the Lord and obedient to His call to worship. This psalm would no doubt have been a favorite song of worshiping pilgrims, enjoying the protection and favor of the Lord as they approach step by step, with anticipation building, getting ever closer to Zion's hill. What is Zion? Just for your recall, 
The Zion is an elevated place in Scripture geographically. It's the area upon which Jerusalem and, more importantly, the temple was situated. It was the place geographically that represented an absolutely unique circumstance in all of the earth. Yes, it was the place where man met with a holy God. It was the place where the conditions in order for that relationship to be possible were absolutely satisfied or at least satisfied in anticipation of absolute satisfaction to come. That is to say, the sacrifices took place in the temple and they spoke of a sufficient sacrifice to come so the reality of Zion would be established in that perfect sacrifice one day and this was the central location of the worship of the people. Zion represents the place where the sacrifice that is necessary for a sinner to be atoned, to be justified, and to be in the presence of God in sweet communion and fellowship and not struck dead in a moment, Zion is that place. It is an exciting place to be if you have a heart filled with faith. It is the only place to be, ultimately speaking, where there is safety, mercy, grace, salvation. That, brothers and sisters in Christ, is Zion. That is the place secured for us, the fulfillment of what we read in Psalm 84. Zion is the place of communion purchased for us by Jesus, the full and final sacrifice where we can have perfect fellowship with the Holy God. We have a taste of it this morning in this fellowship today, but we will taste its fullness and glory one day. Ultimately, Zion is that place where every last thing that Christ died to pay for is a reality, comes to fruition in a new heavens and new earth under the great King, every sin satisfied, every tear wiped away, every sin atoned for, every wrong made right, every sorrow washed away in the pure joy of reunion with Jesus, through Jesus Christ, with a holy God, the Father, by the power of the Spirit's working on each individual heart there represented at the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is Zion. Now, at the time of Psalm 84, there was symbolic activities, feasts and the like, and even the location that represented these things. Therefore, Psalm 84 joins the Psalms of ascent. That means Psalms of ascending or rising or going up, you could say. Psalms 120 through 134 are in the line of this same theme as Psalm 84. Songs that were a good soundtrack to sing while you were ascending Zion, going up to the place of communion, where you were going to meet with the Lord. This would be music to accompany the journey up to the tabernacle or up to the temple. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy tells us that there were three feasts annually which called for this journey or this pilgrimage. This was by direction from the law of God. These feasts were, number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover. Number two, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. And number three, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Let me read to you briefly from the law of God in Deuteronomy 16, verse 16. Here is the command, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So there we have the record, the occasion in the law 
for the background, the reason for Psalm 84. Likely Psalm 84 was written to commemorate one or all of these feast days, a good song to sing as you are approaching Zion, as you're going to the temple to celebrate either the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Weeks, or Booths. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great commentator preacher, helps paint a picture in our minds of the kind of uh, joy and anticipation in the heart of the psalmist. He writes the following, Families journeyed together, making bonds that grew at each halting place. They camped in sunny glades, sang in unison along the roads, toiled together over hill and through slough. As they went along, they stored up happy memories which would never be forgotten. One who was debarred the holy company of pilgrims and the devout worship of the congregation would find this psalm fit expression for his mournful spirit. In other words, in the heart of a believer, back when Psalm 84 was written, the height of the joys in his life when he was walking in the Spirit was these feast days. And so if for some reason he couldn't make that pilgrimage, couldn't make that journey, it was a sad day indeed. And there are mournful notes that Psalm 84 strikes along this line. Psalm 84 therefore brings the reader along the journey of emotion depending on how far removed he is from the place of God's dwelling with man. So there's kind of a series of emotions that the author expresses based upon his proximity to Zion. The further away from Zion he is, the sadder he feels, the more longing in his heart. The closer he gets, the more joy, anticipation, and excitement rushes through his soul. Let me give you a brief illustration. Uh, Three years ago or so, my family was gearing up for a trip to Colorado a little vacation. And I got this really bright idea that I would stay behind and work on the house and surprise my wife when she returned and whatnot. And plus, you know, it's always good to um, be making money and stuff. Vacations are expensive. It wasn't two or three, four hours down the road when I got this sinking feeling. And it was inspired by pictures that were coming back on my text thread, right? And so as the kids are all smiling and Nikki's taking pictures, you know, at Paul Bunyan's rocking chair or check out this albino buffalo, suddenly I felt like I was a main character in a Tim LaHaye uh, movie, you know, left behind. I felt like, oh, I'm separation anxiety. Why am I not there? I want to see the albino buffalo. I want to hang out with my kids while they're rocking in Paul Bunyan's big chair. And I I fought that feeling uh, all week long. Why? Well, as Psalm 84 says in this silly illustration, it's something of the feeling, the emotion that he expresses. I had highways in my heart on the way to Colorado. I was in my heart with my family. That's where I wanted to be. I was separated from them, and I felt that feeling of disconnect and loss or sorrow. And so the reunion, you can imagine, is all the sweeter under these conditions. Let's consider Psalm 84 along these lines and see what we can learn about sanctified affections. Remember, Psalm 84, I think in part, is meant to convict us of taking the privileges of our relationship with God too lightly. In other words, have you ever missed a Sunday of fellowship with God's people and felt the way I did when my family cruised down the road and I wasn't there to join them? Have you ever felt this separation anxiety when you couldn't make church because of sickness? Have you ever been on vacation and it's over a Sunday and you just had to find a church because you didn't want to go two weeks without celebrating with uh, the things that you and your family of God have in common? Well, if those feelings are rare, then Psalm 84 is for you. It's meant to quicken and convict uh, us that we have great privileges 
And that we should not take those privileges of our relationship with the Lord and His people lightly. Consider this heading. Sanctified affections, or you could say emotions or desires. Sanctified affections relative to Zion. Of course, relative to the place of meeting with God and His people. First of all, the psalmist expresses, the psalmist expresses a longing for the privilege of meeting with uh, God's people. So a longing for the privilege of worshiping the Lord. A second sanctified affection, an anticipation along the way on the journey to worship. Third sanctified emotion, reassurance via covenant, reminding himself that the promises of God are true for him. And then finally, a certainty of glory, a confidence in the glory that he experiences in worship that he has truly met the Lord. Let's look at these. Sanctified affections relative to Zion. Number one, a longing for the privilege of worship. One through four in Psalm 84 says again, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Do you sense this longing, this desire, this deep-seated affection, this passion, yea, even almost obsession to be with God's people, with the Lord at the place of His communion with His saints, at Zion indeed? He says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Out of the heart and soul of the one who wrote this song spontaneously erupts these songs of love and appreciation and desire to be in the most precious, the most happy place he can imagine. He goes on, verse 3, and he's expressing some envy of the birds that are closer to his eye than him. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Finally, verse 4 in this first section, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praises. Notice this blessed reference is actually recurs three times in the text. The psalmist says that blessed are those who dwell in your house. The very next verse he says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. The last verse he says in the last phrase phrase is, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The most privileged, the most wealthy, the most incredibly blessed People in all the earth, in all the world, are those who can know and appreciate Zion. This is the lovely place. This is the destination beyond all compare. This is the relationship to be coveted above all others. This is what is greater than riches. This is what will survive when moth, rust, and thieves break in, steal, corrupt, and destroy and oxidize all that the world declares glorious and powerful and wealth and wealth as far as we define it in this world. Not so. The psalmist corrects our affections. The most lovely place and the most blessed of all people are those who know communion with their maker. The most blessed of all people are the ones who have experienced salvation such that they are reunited with the God who formed them from the dust of the earth, breathed life into their lungs via our representative Adam in the first place, and now walk with him in the cool of the day once again. Appreciate the relationship restored through Christ our Savior with the one who made us and formed us and shaped us and called us and destined us to give him glory. This is the lovely place. This is the place the psalmist seeks to dwell in 
He laments the moments that are separated and where he's distracted and where he's confused and where he's disoriented and where his flesh might steal from him his joy and redirect his emotions and desires somewhere else. And he seeks to remember the most precious, powerful, beautiful, lovely, and wealthy of all things in life. And so he sets his heart in this song uh, toward Zion. Secondly, he does so with an expression of his whole being. This longing that he expresses, he uses several words to convey. He says of himself, verse 2, that his soul longs, yes, faints. So we can underline soul there. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. He goes further, he says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This threefold reference, soul, heart, and flesh, is meant to emphasize his entire being, all of him, to the deepest core. The, uh, fundamentally, the very essence of who he is cries out, longs for a communion, relationship, and reunion with the Lord, his maker. My soul longs, even faints. That is to say that he has a deep-seated need where, like us, with water and food, if we are fasting, if, we, if there's a famine for too long, we will simply wither and die. We will die from lack of nutrition if we don't get food for our uh, body, our physical body. The psalmist knows that this is analogy, an analogy for his soul. He knows that if he does not receive the food of the Word of God, which you are partaking of, I trust even this morning, as the Word of God is proclaimed in our hearing, that he will die, that there will be a famine spiritually. He knows that his vitality, his livelihood, the most important aspects of his being, in fact, rely on and are dependent on God's means for his survival. And for him, that meant worshiping with the people of God, observing the feasts, appreciating the meaning and significance of what the sacrifices represented, and then realizing the great blessing and benefit and joy that all of that represented. And so, as his mind is corrected to these priorities... He says, my soul, my heart, and my flesh, my whole being cries out my deepest desires, longing for you. Now, brothers and sisters, let me submit to you that in our sin, we use these kind of expressions, but they are seldom tied to the Word of God. If you turn on the top 100, you know, songs on the local radio station, you can hear a heart and a soul and a flesh crying out for something But is it for the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, who through his son Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be reconnected with the sovereign of the universe? No, it's usually love loss. It's usually the hope of a romantic relationship. It's usually uh, misguided affections and outstanding dreams and unrealized ambitions for what this world has to offer. Those, brothers and sisters, are cheap, empty, uh, dying, withering substitutes for what truly animates the soul of man when he realizes the purpose for which he was designed. His whole being is wired when it is redeemed and set aright again to be in relationship with the Lord. The psalmist goes on to use an illustration to express this deep desire. He considers the swallows and the sparrows, the birds that live close to the temple, really lucky. Lucky birds, they get to make nests right there on the altar. Oh, if I were a sparrow that could just make my home in the rafters of the tabernacle. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself. 
where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And you see, at this time, as I told you, as we learned from Deuteronomy 16, for most people, there were but three feast days where the uh, height and the climax of this kind of worship was possible for them to participate in. And if you missed one, there was only two more left in the year, and it was, it was a significant deal if you really loved the Lord. Could you imagine the author of Psalm 84 being here among us today? What if he had a time machine and went forward through history after Christ has come and given us uh, the reason, the means, the command, even the uh, model or pattern in Scripture to meet weekly as his early church did? Imagine the author of Psalm 84 coming in a time machine in our day and realizing the joy, the privilege, the blessing, and the benefit of participating in worship with God's people weekly even more. Now we have something of a perspective, do we not, where we might be encouraged with the great joy that we ought to have realizing the blessing of this post-Christ world that we have. We don't have just three feast days where we travel a long distance to the only geographical location, but as our worship text said, Jesus prophesied and then fulfilled the prophecy in Himself to the woman at the well. The day is coming when those who worship me don't need to go to this mountain or that one, this one isolated geographic location, but they can worship me in spirit and in truth. And in Christ, this is possible even for us today. So we are like lucky birds, if you will. We are like the swallows and sparrows who get to actually build a nest and weekly return to the worship of the Lord, at least in the application as it's represented in our group, our assembly, even this morning. So this is a longing for the privilege of worship that the psalmist express, expresses. Second, sanctified affection, anticipation on the way. So what were the heightened expectations? What was the encouraging, exciting uh, joys that God's people shared together as they made this journey. We read of this in verses 5 through 7. The psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Their early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Now, you can kind of feel the author taking us on a journey poetically as we read Psalm 84. First, there is this longing to be there, and now it's as if we're walking beside, trudging along on that journey to Zion. And we can imagine, as Spurgeon helps us, the kinds of encampments in the sunny glades and the songs in unison, yes, even Psalm 84, I'm sure, that were... uh, participated, that the the people participated in as they made common cause to walk towards Zion. Another illustration of this in Scripture might be when the shepherds received the message that Christ was born on that glorious Christmas night, as we call it. Do you remember what happened? The sky was full of angels, indeed the heavenly hosts, and they announced that the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, was born that day. But not as you might expect, but this king lay in a manger, Humbly wrapped in swaddling clothes, and we know the reason why from Scripture. The Lord of glory condescended to man, became a man, dwelt with us in order to secure all the necessary conditions for our salvation. And this was first announced among the first to hear this news were lowly shepherds in the field. And when their eyes were opened to the revelation of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, 
they made a quick, a swift, and gloriously exciting pilgrimage to Bethlehem to see that baby. Can you imagine their conversations? I'm sure many of them knew the Psalms. Don't you think they might have broke out in song? As they went towards Zion, and this is, a different, uh, this is a different revelation of Zion than what was known before, this time the true king, the true anointed one had arrived. He was taking his throne. He was soon to take his throne, and he was about to accomplish the work necessary so that Zion could be a forever established, fulfilled reality for all God's people, past, present, and future. <clears throat> Do you think their legs got sore? Do you think they grew tired on the journey? Do you think some said, you know, this isn't worth it? Uh, you know, I got sheep to take care of. No. Every last one of those shepherds realized the joy of their endeavor and made haste and joyfully participated in this great experience until they met the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, wrapped in that hum- those humble clothes in that humble manger. They had anticipation on the way. This almost speaks of highways of the heart. There were paths that were well-trod, and they had deep ruts, likely, from carts, I'm sure, carrying goods. They were well-worn, and few, a little, you know, not much foliage grass would grow up because of the sandal-shod feet that would go back and forth. These were the highways in the nation of Israel that paved the way. They, they told a story of the pilgrim's direction of returning to the place of worship. Those who really appreciated this, uh, these things, however, had highways not just under their feet, but in their heart. If they, for some reason, couldn't make it, like me, you know, like a dummy staying home when my family was on vacation, the highways in their heart cried out, oh, if I could just be with them, celebrating on the way, singing the songs of ascent, we'd almost be there right now. Lord, I pray next feast that I could go. These highways of the heart, now, I encourage you parents um, to cultivate this in your homes. You know, one thing that's encouraging to me, sometimes my kids ask me, how many days till Sunday? How many days till church day, some of them say. Um, if your kids say that to you, really, really encourage them. What you are hearing from that young voice is a highway being paved in their heart. They're anticipating one of the glorious privileges that we have as believers They're counting down the days until the next time they meet the Lord and His people. They may not fully understand, but those highways of the heart are very important. Parents, anyone in a spiritual leadership position, it is so important to cultivate that kind of heart pavement, if you will, to lay out those patterns. After all, this is our calling, is it not? To post on the doorposts and by the way when our children rise up and when they lie down so that the highways of the heart can be established to Zion. And again, what is Zion for us? It's the truth that Christ has come, that He on Calvary paid the just and final sufficient payment for our sins, and that when we trust in that and believe and confess our sins, we too can share with the joy of the psalmist in Psalm 84, and the highways of our heart can be pointed towards Zion. Now, not only are there highways in the heart, but there are valleys redeemed. There's a little language that further study helps us un- unveil in verse 6. It says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. What is meant here? Well, the valley of Baca, uh, historically, it seems, was a dry place, a place where you would never really go. It's n- no one was going to build a resort there. It wouldn't be a vacation destination. It was like flyover country. You just pass through, arid, desolate, desert place, dry. But it's redeemed. In other words, This dry and desolate place becomes something of a sanctuary of joy. 
as it is filled with the expectant pilgrims excited about where they're going. That is to say, they are so excited about where they're going that they forget to complain about where they are. They are so excited about where they're going, they forget to complain about where they are. The Valley of Baca would likely be hot, you'd be sweating, there'd be dust, it would fill your nose and your, uh, all the orifices in your face and so forth. It would be a place where long stretches between water, maybe you need to ration your food. This is kind of the idea so far as we can tell. But they're so excited about where they're going, they forget to complain about how hot it is in Baca and how long the pathway is to Zion. There's an analogy here, is there not? Life can seem very difficult and long. The dust storms of trial can beat all kinds of irritants into your soul. Life can be a difficult slog. In most days, for most people, it probably feels more like a trial than it does like walking on cloud nine or walking on sunshine or whatever these goofy songs that really hold out false hope if you're realistic about life in a post-fall world. However, there are those who are so focused on Zion, who are so in tune with the promises of God and so uh, in line with the Holy Spirit. And we can be these kind of people if we let our affections, our emotions, our heart and soul be transformed by the Word of God. We think so much about glory that we forget to complain about work on Monday morning or about the difficult trial we're going through. And this is helpful. It gives us a focus. It redeems the valleys of life. This anticipation on the way turns valleys of arid desert into places, sanctuaries of rejoicing. Now, as they go, all of this is inspired, all of this is enabled, this power to proceed unto Zion, difficult trek. It's enabled by the Lord Himself. Verse 7 they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. And this indicates to us in a poetic way that God gives the people strength to make the next leg of the journey, but then to strength, strength to make the next leg of the journey after that and so forth, until glory of glories, there it is, the hill, Zion in front of them, and on top, like a crown, like a pinnacle, a castle, holding forth the glorious hope of union with the Lord, there it is, the temple. I see it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, you can study in your own time. There's something of a corollary or an echo. It says, in our own sanctification... That the Lord leads us in our life to look more and more like Christ from glory to glory. Just like He led His pilgrims on the Feast of Booths, Tabernacle, Feast of Unleavened Bread from strength to strength to make that next leg of the journey. Let's move to number three. The third sanctified affection, the third holy emotion relative to Zion is reassurance by a covenant. Verses 8 through 10. O Lord God of hosts, Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Let's pause on that name for God, O God of Jacob. This is a common reference to the Lord. Why? Because Jacob was important? No, Jacob, we know, is fraught with sinful uh, you know, frailties. We see his story in Scripture. Why is the term God of Jacob so frequently used in Scripture? It is because of covenant. It is because of promises that God made to Jacob. So when you hear this reference, what you are hearing is the psalmist making appeal, the biblical author remembering that God had staked his own word on accomplishing something for his own people. And so the psalmist is taking reassurance from this covenant bond. He is saying, 
O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. I make my appeal. I know you will listen because you are the God of Jacob and I am of Jacob. I am your people and you have made promises to your people. And of course, this is ever true in our case, especially only in fact through Jesus Christ. I am your son. I believe in Jesus Christ. I am the heir of his blessings and his estate because I am a child of God, adopted son. O God of Jacob. O God of the Jacob uh, of the people of God, in Jesus Christ, hear my prayer, a reassurance via covenant. This hope rushes into his soul as he remembers what God has done in the past. Now, he may be, he, he may be lamenting that he may not make this next trek to worship the Lord, and the height of his joyful expectations may not be fulfilled in the near term. So he looks back and he remembers the covenant promises and is reassured that the Lord ultimately will bring him to Zion. Second phrase, covenantally aligned, is your anointed. Verse 9, behold your shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. Now this is likely a reference to the king of the time. Remember the anointing by Samuel on David for his office as king. And the promise, again a covenant to David, that there will always be someone from your lineage on the throne. Call this the throne of David. Jesus Christ is introduced in Matthew 1 as the son of David for this reason. And so this appeal on the grounds of the anointed king is a reference to the uh, individual who represents them. Behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. In other words, remember that you have appointed our representative and that you and equip and enable him to defend us and, to and, and by his protection and his favor, would you preserve the conditions optimally necessary for us to make the journey to Zion? And this, of course, is fulfilled in Christ, the anointed King. And never more so. In Jesus Christ, we pray and we align behind Him and we trust that the way, the shield of the Lord and the pathway to Zion is perfectly preserved and His favor has visited us par excellence, if you will, in the anointed King of Kings, Jesus Christ. The reassurance of covenant. Finally, there's a comparison contrast, verse 10. Again, to illustrate his point, the psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. What would you rather have? You know, you ever played that game, would you rather? Would you rather have one day at Zion or a thousand at Valley Fair? Would you rather have one day at Zion or a thousand at, you know, pick your favorite thing to do or favorite place to be? And the answer coming forth without hesitation from the psalmist is, Zion, I'll take one day in Zion over uh, 10,000 anywhere else, or over 1,000 anywhere else. There is nothing that compares. By orders of magnitude, it is exponentially greater. There is no place on earth that can compete with one day in Zion. He further makes his point by saying this, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So the translation is a little ambiguous here. We're not sure exactly the idea, but some commentators have said it's likely threshold. I'd, I'd rather be something like a beggar at the threshold of the household of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So again, the picture is, I'd rather be the lowest of classes in Zion than uh, a conquering war general going out to take ground uh, in my tents, you know, among the wicked. Something of the picture there. And may also refer to, we discussed this in our family uh, worship time last night, my wife mentioned this, and it was corroborated by some commentaries as well, that there is a house and tent comparison here. 
In other words, the house of the Lord is permanent. So only a fool would trade that for the temporary tent. What's better, a house or a tent? The house of the Lord is permanent. It cannot be blown over. It is established on the rock, Jesus Christ, fitted with living stones of those who confess faith in Him. Again, in New Testament language, therefore, don't be a fool and build your house on sand. Reassurance via covenant. Finally, this morning, sanctified affections, desires relative to Zion. We've talked about a longing for the privilege of worshiping with God's people, an anticipation on the journey that direction, a reassurance via His promises and covenant. And finally, the author expresses a certainty of glory. Last two verses in Psalm 84, 11 and 12. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. There are two pairs that we can consider in these two verses. The first is sun and shield, and the second is favor and honor. Now, if you imagine Psalm 84, like I briefly mentioned before, like a journey, like we're being brought along in the thoughts and feelings, the emotions of the psalmist, if we have just gone through, you know, the pilgrimage there, in verses 10 and, or 11 and 12, it's as if we have, have arrived. You can almost see in the mind's eye, or you can almost imagine the psalmist in his mind's eye is now standing at Zion itself. He's there. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one. Nope, that's the wrong reference. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. What of this reference to sun and shield? Well, it speaks to the comprehensive blessing that Zion represents. Not only does Zion protect us, the shield, Jerusalem was a walled city. It was protected more than this by the Lord and His purposes. Uh, historians have noted, now, this is something really interesting. Remember Deuteronomy 16? So all the able-bodied men were supposed to, three times a year, same day each year, or same, you know, same three days each year, they're supposed to make this long journey to go worship the Lord. Now, if you we're an enemy nation. When would you attack Israel? Oh, pretty easy to figure that one out, right? Well, let's do it when everybody is in Zion. You know, let's do it when everybody's at temple worship and all the outlying regions are free for the taking. You know, in Scripture, I can't think of a single time that happened. Have you ever heard of such a thing happening? Why did it not happen? I'll tell you why. Some trust in chariots and some in horses but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Which is safer, obedience to the Lord or making sure your borders are guarded with shoulder to shoulder, gleaming swords and chariots and the rest and whatever war machine a nation can boast? Which, which is safer, obedience to God or the sword of men? The Bible teaches us this lesson, and brothers and sisters, we will learn this lesson in our nation as well. And I submit to you that more often than not, we place our confidence in swords of men, armaments of war, more than we do in obedience to the Lord. However, there is nothing safer, nothing safer than obedience to the Lord. The Lord was the shield for the people. They need not fear if they worshiped Him that their borders would be encroached by their enemies, but God would protect the parameters of His covenant people. He was jealous for His own. There's no way that God would let the enemy come in and ravage His people when they were obedient to His Word. The key is obedience. Protection comes following obedience. We would like to be protected first and then, yeah, maybe I'll add a little religion to my life now that I feel safe. No, 
There is no salvation outside of obedience to the Lord. Christ himself kept the law perfectly as our obedience. And now, having realized that salvation, we are to walk in that obedience. Again, it's not by works, but these works demonstrate where our security lies. Obedience to the Lord is the only sure protection. Now, that's the shield part. But the Lord God is not just a shield, but he's also a son. What does the son, S-U-N, represent? Well, it's like the furnace and engine that keeps this entire world viable. It allows life to exist. It's the energy that necessarily warms the earth that causes the seasons to thrive with fruit-bearing trees, even today in this post-fall universe. The sun is responsible for the provision and for the light and uh, everything really blooming, plants, fields, and so forth. So this, um, this analogy, this metaphor, becomes one of a great, marvelous, enduring provision. What uh, if uh, someone uh, went on a conspiracy to put out the sun? I'm tired of this. or I'd like to destroy the earth, so I'm just going to go extinguish the sun. What a foolish endeavor that would be. We know the closer they would get to the sun, the more futile their attempts, they would melt and be incinerated because this uh, nuclear force of fusion or whatever is taking place is more powerful than anything we can possibly imagine. This source of provision and power is associated with the Lord God in this poetic language. He is the sun and shield. Remember in the tabernacle and in the temple, when the glory of the Lord was present with His people, He showed Himself as something like a sun. The radiance of His glory was shining forth in the pillar of fire that led the people and the cloud at night through the wilderness. That same Shekinah, as we call it, glory in the original language, rested upon the temple. And so when you were at Zion and God was there, you saw evidence in that the sun, uh, uh, so, so to speak, his shining forth was present in that place. Brothers and sisters, the same thing happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is our sun and shield? Is it not Jesus Christ our Lord, who for a moment showed his three disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration with the veil uh, removed, his eternal pre-incarnate glory. He is the Son. He is the shield. More than this, we read fulfillment of his final work in Revelation 21, where this language of Son and shield, if you will, comes up again. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I want you to notice the parallels between Psalm 84 and this fulfillment passage in Revelation. The temple, Zion, as the psalmist knew it in Psalm 84, has now given way to the unmitigated, if you will, presence of Almighty God and the Lamb, that's Jesus Christ. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light... This is the light of Jesus Christ, His glory shining forth, His works, His worth, His attributes, so, so filling the environment and the experience and the appreciation of those who dwell there. It says that by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations and nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, in the further revelation of God's Word, this, what we just read, is the certainty of glory. 
This is Zion, echoed and, and prefigured and prophesied of in Psalm 84, fulfilled in Christ's work fully realized in the future. A sun and a shield, favor and honor. We think of justification. Last week we were talking about these terms in Romans 8, 28 and following it. Paul referred to in Galatians, the fundamental transformation that takes place in Christ's gospel work in our hearts. He calls us, he predestines us, he justifies us, and he does so in such a way that our life proceeds unto justification. And then he sanctifies us, makes us holy along the way. This is evidence through the gospel of his favor on our life. Son, shield, favor, honor, ever-present, glorious form in Zion, the certainty of glory. No good thing, says finally in verse 11, does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, that is God of celestial armies, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In the context of our psalm today, in part at least, what does it mean to walk uprightly? Does it not mean to have your footsteps trained towards Zion? Does it not mean to nurture desires in your own heart that the highways to a relationship with the Lord would be paved even in your heart and soul? Does it not mean that we would realize and appreciate, even if it could be said, with greater love and zeal and gratefulness what is available in Jesus Christ than the psalmist could have known at the time when he wrote this psalm? Yes, indeed. So let us walk uprightly, for those of you that know Christ in this place, by reminding ourselves that Psalm 84 convicts us if we take the privileges of our relationship with the Lord, our union with Him and His people, too lightly. And for those of us who do not know Him yet, let us hear and see that the only way to hope and salvation to Zion itself is through Jesus Christ. And I beg of you, join us on that journey, that pilgrimage of great expectation that will uh, one day be fulfilled in what we read of in Revelation 21, that glorious reunion, that glorious kingdom fully realized where we share such sweet fellowship with the Lord that words cannot describe what is in store for those who the Lord loves and who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let us close in prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful for the promises of Scripture that are true from cover to cover and that yet endure in our ears and faith by the Holy Spirit's application even this day. We are so thankful for those who are citizens of Zion in this place today that you've given us such sweet promises that are that are ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the anointed prophet, priest, and king. We also pray, Lord, that our hearts being tuned to the joys that Zion, Zion represents for us would be contagious, that others would ask for a reason for the hope within, and we could tell them of the glorious pathways unto reunion with you in perfect manifest fullness, that they might come to salvation come to repentance before the cross and faith in Jesus Christ. In all of this, we pray that your church would be equipped and fortified and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.